Welcome to the Business of Biotech. Today's show is the first of our summer executive sessions, uh, which is a series of sit downs with a number of leaders in the emerging biotech space where we're going to dig a little deeper into the people behind the products, the processes, and the trends that are shaping the biologic space. And as such, the conversations you'll hear over the next couple of months uh, on the business of biotech might be a, a bit more personal, might be a, a bit more freeform than you've heard to date, but certainly no less insightful and no less instructive for the leaders of early stage biopharmas. And helping me kick off the summer executive session series today is a guy who knows his way around the pharmaceutical finance office. Better, I think, than just about anyone else that I could have picked. His name is Ivor McLeod. Uh, Ivor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Oh, the honor is, is ours. Now, I say that, that you're a great pick because just for the benefit of our audience who, who doesn't know you, uh, you spent your career serving big pharma uh, in VP of finance and CFO roles um, with some pretty big players, right? Merck, uh, Roche, Isaac, uh, but, but this and more. But this past January, uh, you made a, a big move by walking away from uh, big pharma to join the clinical stage regenerative medicine company, Athersis, as CFO. January, correct? That's right, end of January. Yeah, well, congratulations on that move. Thank you. So we're going to, uh, a little bit later in our conversation, Ivor, I wanna talk with you about what, uh, what prompted that move, the why behind that move, but, uh, and we'll get to that shortly. But first, I wanna, I wanna kinda dig into your pharma finance uh, worldview or philosophy, if you will, because you and I chatted for a few minutes last week. And one of the things that you said that struck me was that you're a, a finance guy who uh, has resisted the finance guy persona, you know, some, so, somewhat of a, a reluctant finance uh, guy. Yet, I mean, you're, you're highly educated in finance, you're a CPA, you're an MBA, um, studied mathematics and economics at St. Andrews. Uh, before, you know, and, you, and you've embraced that mantle. So uh, before we get into, you know, what's going on at Athersis, and I'm, I'm just curious, why the resistance? Where, where does that come from? Why do you call yourself a, a reluctant finance guy? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it goes back really to my childhood. Um, I, gosh, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was very close with my godfather, um, Godfrey. And Godfrey was in the Navy and he served on HMS Hermes, which I believe was the first uh, purpose-built aircraft carrier in the world. It sunk during the war. Uh, it was sunk by the Japanese and um, Godfrey survived. Anyway, as a child, he told me all these stories. Every birthday and Christmas, he would send me books um, about Horatio Hornblower. This was Napoleonic War Navy stuff. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it, it really got me excited about the Navy and I wanted to join the Navy um, as most kids do, I suppose. But my eyes have never been good. I mean, I have terrible vision. Without contacts, I, I probably couldn't find my way across a room. And I was disappointed to find out that the only way I could get into the Navy was to be a doctor. Hmm. So I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and this was as a child. So I studied biology um, and knew I had to be good at biology. 
So really got into the experiments, everything else. Unfortunately, every time I took an aptitude test, it was showing I was a numbers guy, mathematics, mm -hmm. logic, all this type of stuff. And I kept resisting it. I resisted it all the way to college. Um, and actually, even in college, I started off studying the sciences, but ended up in economics, which was more sort of mathematics. And um, anyway, it, 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 it was really a pushback and my desire to join the Navy. Yeah. Um, and I actually resisted all the way. When I graduated from St. Andrews, I had a couple of choices. I, I could go into public accounting or I could have a shot at the Navy, but with my eyes, I, I just didn't have a chance. So yeah. ended up coming to the States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you, and, and over the course of time, you've, you've sort of reconciled your, uh, um, I guess, in, 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 in I don't want to say inability because I'm sure you, you had the ability, but the choice you reckon reconciled the choice by, you know, really pursuing your, your passion for science as well, by committing your, your career to, you know, running, running point on finance in in the, in the pharma space. So, um, where, where is that, that interest in science? Where, where does that come from? Yeah, that's, that's, that's been with me my, my, my entire life. My, my dad is a, a world-renowned physicist. Um, he's in optics, thin films, um, mm. optical coatings. And as a consequence, I've always been surrounded by scientists. Um, and it's interesting because, yes, I would say I finally surrendered and became a finance guy, but I'd like to think of myself as an amateur scientist yeah. And that's really where my interest in healthcare came about. Yeah, 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 and and that's another area that I wanted to uh, kind of focus on. Is in our in our brief chat last week, we talked about the the different languages that that um, finance people, in general, and and science people speak. And when those two worlds come together in a, in a pharma environment, um, there's often some, you know, I don't I don't know if I'd call it friction, but disconnect for sure. Uh, and, and your unique background and, and interests, um, I think, have, have sort of bridged the gap there. So tell us a little bit about that. When you, when you consider yourself sort of a, 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 a translator between, and this is using your words, the, the quarterly finance language spoken by CFOs and the milestones language uh, spoken by scientists, um, how, how does that kind of play out for you in practice and how have you kind of honed that ability? Yeah, so it really started when I, I first got involved in, in pharmaceuticals and I realized there was a little bit of a disconnect. Um, in the finance world, everything's about the end of the month, the end of the quarter, whereas in the science world, it's milestone to milestone. And I realized very early on that, that um, business acumen is critical to be successful in finance. So I took the time to sit down with the scientists and understand their world and then try and put in layman's terms, my world. And this is things like understanding the difference between cash and accrual, uh, understanding that when you commit and actually have activity, one has to record an expenditure. Um, simple things really, but, but um, and then in return, they taught me about their world, um, what all the acronyms stood for. You, you'll find that in pharmaceuticals, in particular, acronyms are overused. And the unfortunate thing is the same acronym can mean something completely different. I mean, right. if you just look at R&D, for example, everyone thinks of research and development, but 
but in the transportation industry, that means receiving and departure. Mm-hmm. So, and it's those types of things. Um, well, so, and it's, it's probably, I mean, aside from having multiple meanings within a space, uh, some of these acronyms may be familiar in one geography or, or nation and, and not in another or culture. And, and believe me, your point is not lost on me. Our, our, our audience knows that I'm relatively new to this space. So I'm, I'm learning, uh, you know, quite rapidly. Uh, the, the acronym uh, issue is not lost on me. Yeah, so, so um, over the years, it's... Um, it's become a very good relationship. Um, I like to think that I've earned the trust of the scientists. They tend to tell me everything. I get involved in contracts. When you, when you have scientists negotiating contracts, yes, they're interested in outcomes, but they're not necessarily paying close attention to the structure of the contract. So for example, if a company wants all the money up front, maybe that's a blind spot for the scientist. Whereas the finance person would say, well, wait a minute, um, don't we want at least some of the work before we pay the money? Right. Um, and looking at these types of things. So, um, and I have to say at Athesis, it's really not a problem at all. Um, you know, it's, it's a small company and a very, very talented leadership team. And um, we all draw outside the lines. You know, there aren't really necessarily firm job descriptions. Sure. And so there really isn't this language barrier, not at all. Yeah. And do you find yourself, uh, you know, when I ask how that sort of plays out in practice, do you find yourself uh, interacting sort of on the, you know, uh, on the science level with those folks on the daily, you know, as opposed to perhaps, and this is just my assumption, as opposed to perhaps at a Merck or a Roche where, you know, maybe you're in a, in a corner office at, at, at HQ working with other finance and, and accounting people and very rarely have a direct interface with the science itself, unless it's, you know, something going on at the science level that requires uh, a whole lot of finance involvement. I mean, kind of paint that picture for me. No, you're exactly right. I mean, one of the refreshing things about joining Athesis is I go to the office next door to get a decision. I don't have to fly across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it is that type of atmosphere. When you work at Merck and you have hundreds of clinical studies, um, whereas at Athesis, we have two phase threes. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yes, there's an awful lot of dialogue every day um, and looking at non-financial metrics. So, for example, yes, it's great to be ahead of budget. But when you look down below, does that mean we're behind on enrollment? Does it mean, you know, are we not you know, all, all these sort of non-financial metrics? And, and we do talk about it all the time. Yes, we, we learn from each other. It's, it's a very, very constructive environment. Yeah. Uh, how many people are there at, at Athersis? We're just shy of 100. Okay, yep. And uh, geographically, are, 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 is the company pretty consolidated there in, in your area? Yes, so the headquarters is here in Cleveland. We have a small subsidiary actually in just outside Brussels in Belgium, mm-hmm. um, about 15 people there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's, uh, the dynamic is relatively easy to, to create and maintain to have that open dialogue and uh, interactive Absolutely. atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, your, your decision, uh, to make the move, um, back in, back in January, tell me about, tell me about that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you've told me a little bit about it being some inspiring work, obviously, and that's important. You've got to be inspired to, uh, to, to, you know, to make a move like that. But, um, it's a, you know, it had to have been a pretty radical, uh, adjustment for you to go from, from big pharma to, uh, to a small company. Yeah, that's, that's. 
Absolutely right. Um, and, and interesting, my home base was New Jersey. It also involved a relocation to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was first attracted, quite honestly, this won't surprise you, by the science, the, the idea of regenerative medicine. Um, honestly, at first glance, it was science fiction to me. Um, yeah. And, and I, I really was intrigued. And then several meetings, I, I sort of call it speed dating with Gil Van Barkman, the CEO, I became more and more interested. Um, and Athesis, their off-the-shelf multi-stem product, which is derived from stem cells from healthy adult donors from bone marrow, um, they're focused on the critical care segment of the healthcare marketplace. And so their two leading indications are ischemic stroke and what's called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Mm-hmm. The latter has got an awful lot of publicity recently by virtue of COVID-19, the coronavirus. The leading cause of death um, for people who become seriously or critically ill with uh, COVID-19 is actually ARDS. And as a consequence, yes, we got an awful lot of publicity. But that's really what attracted me. The, the idea of making an impact helping patients in the critical care space. It, it, it's, it's a high area of unmet medical need and also probably one of the costliest segments of the healthcare dollar. Um, if one thinks of people being seriously or critically ill, most of these people end up in the intensive care unit, mm-hmm. which is the most expensive place to be in the hospital. Um, I think about a third of healthcare expenditures is spent in the hospital. Um, ICU is at least twice the price of the regular hospital. I mean, this is over $10,000 a day type uh, expenditure. So the quicker we can get people out of there, the better. And um, if they come out healthy, even better. The business of biotech is committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Cytiva, formerly GE Healthcare Life Sciences and the gracious supporter of this project, is also committed to that cause. Check out Cytiva's resources for emerging biotech at citivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. It's interesting because uh, you know, typically, to your point, you know, when you when you first learned of the company, it felt a little bit sci-fi to you. And, and typically, when we think about stem cells and regenerative medicine, we're not necessarily thinking about critical care, right? We're thinking about you know very novel diseases, very you know uh, not uh, these these common uh, co- common ailments um, like SARDS, which has a you know it's a it, it's a it's a very far-reaching, you know, voluminous problem to solve. Um, I'm curious, were you, were you uh, recruited or were you actively looking to, to make a move? Or, or was it a combination of both? It was a combination of both, but I would say I was more recruited than seriously looking at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, how do you, I mean, when you, when you come into a role like that as a finance guy and you think about the big picture, how much... How much does that, uh, I guess, the financial burden 
of the problem that your company is looking to solve? How much does that play into your decision to be able to come in and, and make a difference? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I have to say what attracted me the most was um, what the company was looking for was somebody who had a lot of experience with commercialization. Mm -hmm. um, Ephesus, if all the ducks line up, is two to three years away from the marketplace. And so putting the pieces into place to take us down that pathway. So what Gil was looking for was someone who could think strategically, who had been through this um, a number of times in their career and could actually help the company down that path. So while yes, the finance piece attracted me, it was more the opportunity to leverage all of my experience in the commercial space and strategic wise. Um, so joining at a very, very exciting time. Yeah. Um, the finances are not that complicated, quite honestly. Um, the biggest issue of course is cash um, and raising cash and talking to investors, that type of thing. But mm -hmm. I enjoy that. Um, you know, when, when you're passionate about what you do, it is by no means a burden to explain it to people. And um, yeah. I do that a lot. How, how much different is that from your, your previous roles in, in big pharma? I'm, I'm assuming that uh, when you were, you know, v, VP of finance or, or CFO at a company like a, like a Merck or a Roche, you, you're, uh, you're not necessarily thinking on a daily basis about your next, your, your cash runway or your, your next round of financing, right? That's probably a, an, an again, assumption on my part. So correct, correct me where I'm wrong, but that's probably someone else, someone else's department connected to yours. But, you know, I, I don't imagine you were, uh, you know, worried about raising your next $50 million round. No, that, that's absolutely correct. I mean, I mean, the big difference, of course, is um, my previous companies had revenues, right? Uh, we have very little revenue at the moment. So um, we're more of a cost center. Mm -hmm. Whereas Merck, if you think of 40 or 50 billion in revenue a year, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a difference. So yes, sure. while I wouldn't say cash was no concern. I mean, of course, we, we were sort of cash optimized as we were at Roche. Um, and that was fun. I mean, I have to say that was exciting, moving money all around the world and, and you know, different currencies, hedging, all of these types of things. Mm -hmm. That's to come for Athesis. So I'll be back in that in a couple of years. Yeah. Well, has it been exciting to kind of transition? And, and I guess what have you learned as you've transitioned into, you know, more growth mode for a young company with a bunch of promise pre-commercialization? Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I, I, I was joking with my friends over the weekend because I said, you know, um, Gil will ask me to do something and, and okay, at Merck or Roche, I give that to that department. Um, at Athesis, yeah. I realize I've got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and, 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 and while it's, it, it's fun, I mean, it, it really is a team atmosphere. You know, it's, it's, part administrative, part, you know, no bureaucracy, which is beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. and, and being of the size we are, we can control that as we grow. So great culture. And yeah, it's refreshing to, to actually know that you're making a contribution. You know, one can kid oneself in a company of 80,000 people that you're really having an influence. And you are to some extent, but at Athesis, it really shows. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, uh, as we sit here and talk right now, um, we're we're experiencing some some spikes in the in the pandemic. Uh, th things were looking good there for a few weeks, and now we're we're hearing some more bad news uh, in different areas of the country about where this thing could go. 
and it's uh, it's it's you know it's impossible and, and foolish to have a conversation like this without talking about the impact of the the COVID nineteen pandemic on what it is that you're doing. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, how has the the pandemic uh, kind of affected the specifically the finance game there? Yes. So on the on the finance side, well, first of all, as a company, we took all the appropriate steps early on. Um, if you could work remotely, please do. We made sure everyone was enabled in order to be able to do that. We appropriately social distance. We wear masks at work. I mean, the issue for us really is we were on the front line. We still are on the front line because we're actually the only company that has fast track designation for a potential ARDS therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and six weeks, we, we negotiated with the FDA a protocol. Um, and actually, this was for COVID-19 induced ARDS. And in record time, I mean, this, this six weeks, it may sound like a long time, but normally this takes months. We got the protocol approved, we got sites up and running, and we enrolled our first patients. So we're actually engaged in a, a phase three study. Uh, for COVID-19 induced ARDS. So that's on the science side. Mm -hmm. With regard to the office, what I think we've discovered is just how much one can do remotely slash virtually. Um, if you had told me all of the things that we've accomplished in the last month and a half, three months ago, that they could all be done virtually, I, I'd have said that's, that's not possible. Um, I mean, one really good example is we did do uh, a capital raise. Um, we raised over $50 million and it was completely virtual. Mm -hmm. Normally one takes a road show, one has to visit New York, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, pitch investors, um, go out with banks and, and, and it's a lengthy process. Um, this was highly efficient. Um, you know, we, we, we worked with Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and I was joking the other week, I know 15 or 20 people there just by their voice. I've mm. never actually met them. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, that, that, that is fascinating. And it makes me, you know, as, as I sit here and I think about it, um, yeah, I'm sure you're you know, no stranger to the J.P. Morgan show, right? The J.P. Right, Morgan event that right. kind of squeaked in under the wire, right? This past this past January, before things got really bad, um, and and that that show is noted for its uh, you know for it for its opportunity for new and emerging uh, biopharmas, you know, early stage folks to go out there and 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 pitch and and network and raise raise funds. Um, as, you know, it, it makes me wonder what the uh, what's the necessity does does the necessity of an event like that kind of lose its uh, lose its edge or lose its shine as we discover the things that we can do virtually? Do you see something like that? You know, coming back the way that it used to be. Uh, it, it's a great question and, and one that I think we all want the answer to. I think to some extent yes, but um, we've been participants in several virtual healthcare conferences. In fact, the recent Bank of America healthcare conference, um, we had one of the better attended um, talks and it was all virtual. Mm -hmm. um, well, you're familiar with JP Morgan and, and this running from room to room, trying to get into a room. Some of them are empty, some of them are packed. You can never get around it and, and uh, around all of them. And 
So I think, I think there will be a combination. I mean, the, the thing that is missing is the sort of opportunistic, you bump into somebody and, and right. that, that it, it's, it's missing really. Um, you know, it's very formal presentation questions during the presentation, but there's no talk around the coffee machine or, or this type of thing. And I find that incredibly valuable. Just catching up with people that I've known for, for a while, haven't seen for a while. And sometimes it, it, develops into a, a business opportunity. So, mm -hmm. so I think some combination of the two, but I, th I think, um, yeah, one wonders what'll happen in January. I, I you know, hopefully by then we've, we've got um, something sorted out, but, but, but right now it's, it, it just doesn't look good, does it, in the near term? Yeah, um, and, and that's, I mean, kudos to, to you for uh, taking advantage of the tools, uh, you know, at, at hand to keep business moving and do it efficiently, uh, you know, whether it's related to financing or, or as you said, the, the science and, and keeping the business going. Um, how, how much of that do you, well, first, uh, let me ask you, were there any, were there any cons to that experience, right? Were there any, were, were there any uh, elements of that experience that were, were less than ideal, you know, with, perhaps with the exception of uh, what, what you already noted, um, only knowing people by voice? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, the biggest con is, is um, it, well, first of all, with regard to my, my team, my finance team, um, a lot of the informal getting to know each other is just not there. Mm -hmm. um, we do have a virtual conference calls once a week to update on what we're doing, this type of thing, but, but there's no real chit chat. And, and so I, I, I've been robbed of that. Um, they don't know me as well as they potentially could, and I don't know them as well as I potentially I potentially could. Mm -hmm. So that, that's missing. I mean, the other con, quite honestly, is, um, and I think this is fairly common for all pharma and biotech companies, the impacts it's had on clinical studies, because hospitals, um, of course, are devoting their resources to COVID-19. And as a consequence, some have stopped enrolling subjects for clinical studies because this is labor intensive um, and not absolutely critical. So um, broadly across the industry, I, th I think um, development slowing down. Um, and and you know, one, one hopes that it'll get back to normal quickly, but this will have a consequence um, and, and it's unfortunate. We, we've managed so far to keep going, but, but of course, even we can't say what's gonna happen in the next three to six months. Mm -hmm. um, so far, so good for us, but but um, it, I, I think it's normal for us to say that things could be delayed. Yeah, yeah, and you've got, I mean, your, your company's unique uh, in this in this context, you know, in this situation, in that you have a a, a, a phase three um, therapy that has an immediate application in the here and now of the of the of the pandemic you know immediate potential application for those companies that you know perhaps uh, are working trying to trying to build a company early stage in a, in a therapeutic area that isn't directly tied to the uh, public health emergency that we face right now you know what advice would you give them from a, a finance and, and kind of cash runway and perseverance standpoint well, certainly don't give up. Um, I mean, it's true that, that most of the press is focused on COVID-19, appropriately so, as, as we work our way through this crisis, but there are still any number of unmet medical conditions that companies are pursuing, and I would say keep going. And, and I would also say that 
I was genuinely surprised at how active the capital markets have been with regard to their investments in biotech. Mm -hmm. Again, while all of the press is focused on COVID-19, not all the companies are focused on COVID-19. And there's been some very successful oncology capital raises, um, many, many different companies succeeding um, under the radar, so to speak. So definitely don't give up hope, keep going. And um, you, you, you'd be surprised. Um, it, it's, it's actually more positive than one would, one would think. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, <clears throat> you, you mentioned, uh, you alluded just a few minutes ago to uh, sort of the, the, I guess, the recruitment angle to bring you onto the company um, at, a, at a strategic time because you're, to your point, in an ideal world, two to three years out from commercialization. Um, tell me a little bit about that, uh, that, I guess, strategy around finance when you're in that transitionary phase. We've, on previous episodes of the podcast, we've talked about uh, financial strategy during other transitionary periods, like moving out of the incubator, making capital investments, that kind of thing. But um, I guess just give me some insight into where the company's mindset is, you know, uh, bringing Ivor on at this particular juncture when signs are pointing to you know, the potential to be commercial in a couple of years? Yeah, um, I mean, great question. So at this particular juncture, it, it, it is exciting because we have fast-track designation on our two leading indications, um, which are both in phase three. Um, so there's an awful lot to think about. So probably not necessarily in order of importance, you've got to think about reimbursement. Who's going to pay for the medication? How much are you going to charge? How are you going to distribute it? How are you going to manufacture it? Where are you going to manufacture it? Um, what sort of sales force? Do you need a sales force? Can it be done virtually? Can it be done, does it need to be in person? What type of medical staff are you going to have on board? How many do you need? You know, how concentrated yeah. is the business? All of these sorts of questions. And then um, I think probably where I can assist the most is making the prioritization uh, of all of these different things because everything's competing for resources and you certainly don't want to be too late to the game, but also you don't want to be too early. And so of critical importance is of course, completing the trials successfully, mm -hmm. but then you have to be ready to manufacture. Um, um, so all of these types of things. And um, it, it leads to very interesting discussions and that, and then, I mean, another question for us is, should we partner? Should we go alone? We've been in discussions with a number of companies, a um, number of different interesting structures. Um, those are questions that need to be answered. Do you tap into the competence of an existing company or do you build your own? Mm -hmm. um, what capabilities do you need, you know, et cetera? Oh, that's an interesting point and another one that uh, I, I, I imagine you probably bring a lot to the table uh, when you were working for some of the big pharma brands. I imagine you were very often on the buy side of licensing agreements and mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I, I, we just put an article together a few days ago about uh, points of failure uh, in, in M&A and, and licensing deals. I imagine you've seen a lot of success, a lot of failure, and now that you're on, a, on, the, on the side of the equation that would most likely be the, uh, you know, the licensor or the, you know, the, the, <laughs> The, 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 uh, the child in the uh, partnering relationship. Um, you've, you've got some insight into what mistakes you, you don't want to make. Uh, 
Yes, no, that, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, we, we, we learn from our bumps and bruises. Um, I mean, one of the things that's really, um, and, and part of it is having been in the industry for so long, you know a lot of people. So you're quite well networked. So you know who to go to in the various companies to eliminate all the backwards and forwards, the unnecessary backwards and forwards to get a straightforward, yes, we're interested versus no, we're not. Um, and so I've, I've been able to reach out to a number of people that I've known throughout the years. Um, and that's been very valuable. But yeah. you're right, I, 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 I've been on both sides of the table. I mean, the irony was when I, was, uh, when I left Merck to join Azi, um, one of the things that we did after a year was negotiate a global deal with Merck. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting being on the other side of the table, uh, knowing how these people think. Um, right. In yeah. fact, I had to disqualify myself from certain negotiations just because it was a little bit of a conflict. But uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, having been in those uh, those positions, you probably saw, um, you know, companies that had big aspirations, small companies that had big aspirations come in and, and kind of get eaten by the machine. And you certainly don't want that to happen to the company you're working for now. That's right. Dil- no, that's, do- that's absolutely yeah. right. Um, not now anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Not now. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're running, uh, running a bit short on time here, Ivor, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to share uh, concluding thoughts specifically uh, or concluding thoughts or wisdom specifically for uh, leaders of emerging biotechs who's, uh, you know, who, who we're talking to here today, um, given your, unique experience coming from the big guys down to, down to a thursis. Um, what would be your, your golden nugget? Gosh, that's a great question. I, I, <laughs> I think one of the things that I've realized and, and been around since my time at Athesis is passion is contagious. Um, being passionate. Um, I, I think the advice I would give emerging biotechs is stay passionate about what you do. Make sure you're passionate about what you do. And like I say, it's contagious. If you enjoy talking about what you do and you're passionate about it, it will uh, lead to all kinds of different opportunities and possibilities. Mm-hmm. Everything from fundraising to potential partnerships to being successful. Um, so yeah, yeah to, stay, to- stay passionate. To to, uh, to to turning from a, a finance guy to a to a to a amateur scientist back to a finance guy and then kind of <laughs> embracing both those roles. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy yeah. it. That's great. Well, thank you, Ivor. I appreciate the time. Uh, it's been a nice chat. We hope to have you on a, a, again sometime soon. I know we covered a lot of ground here, but uh, I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Matt. A pleasure. Thank you very much. So that's Ivor McLeod. Uh, I'm Matt Piller, and this is the business of biotech produced by Bioprocess Online and brought to you by Cytiva. You can access a host of of resources hand curated for new and emerging biopharmas at citivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. In the meantime, visit bioprocessonline.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, Subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. And thanks for listening.